post-libertarianism. What's it all about? The way I would define it is that it's basically people who have libertarian ideals in the sense of, you know, they want to live their own lives, that they don't want to necessarily interfere with other people's lives, but they really have a focus on, on a sort of pragmatism and strategy as to how do we actually achieve this sort of a world, taking into consideration the current world that we're starting from. Their criticism of the Lalberts is that they're not serious. They're just preaching their theory and the morality about the non-aggression principle, and they're just never going to affect any change in the real world. A lot of libertarians have had this idea that we could live freely if we could just get to a point where we could just be left alone. But what he and others have realized is, as he says, they will never leave you alone. Instead of talking about ideology, what they talk about is culture. And I think they do have a fair criticism of Lalbert's, where libertarians will tend to focus on kind of materialist, economic incentives and tend to ignore the more cultural forces and cultural incentives. I think that really this, the whole covenant community strategy, it kind of assumes away this fundamental problem of political theory, which is how do you get people with different interests to live together peacefully in some form or another. Europe pretty much started out as 10,000 Liechtensteins, and now they've got one Liechtenstein and one EU. Wait, are we Lulberts? After this episode, I think that the post-libertarians will be calling us Lulberts, and the, the actual Lulberts will be calling us racist. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 36. In this episode, we're going to weigh in on the sort of recent schism in the whole broader liberty movement between post-libertarians and lolberts. If you've never heard either of these terms before, it's probably in the episode for you. It's just going to be a lot of inside baseball nonsense. But if either one of those terms got you riled up, then hopefully we've got something interesting for you. I'm hoping we can zoom out from that discussion a little bit and have a more kind of general theoretical discussion about the nature of, of libertarianism. And I think we can also try to stay on brand a little bit and tie it into thoughts about cities or at least uh, communities. Uh, one topic of discussion that relates to this is this concept of covenant communities, which we've touched on a bit in the past. So I think that's something we can touch on that, that kind of relates to our you know, bailiwick of cities and the built environment. So this whole thing has developed over the last two years or so, especially since COVID, where there are some people who... I guess, had previously considered themselves to be libertarians. We kind of saw everything that was going on with COVID, with all the lockdowns and stuff, and had a bit of an epiphany that the threats we face of authoritarianism are a lot more near-term and less theoretical than what we would have thought before COVID. So these guys have taken a harder look at, at their philosophy with a view to figuring out how to build systems and fight back against this encroaching tyranny in a more effective manner, rather than just you know, telling everyone to go read Murray Rothbard. I think for a lot of us libertarians, it was it was a wake-up call on a number of fronts. One is kind of how quickly and easily they were able to put some pretty draconian measures into place and keep them in place for quite a while. And then two is how easily they, they got people to support those and how many people were willing to go along with that. And number three is kind of how, you know, I, I think as libertarians, a lot of us at times have had this idea that, well, if we can just get the message out to people, you know, once if we can just get people to hear and understand 
and agree with this message, you know, of the non-aggression principle or whatever it is, that it, it's so it's so obvious, you know, it's so persuasive that they would come over to our side. And that the problem is that we just haven't gotten the message out to enough people. And I think what COVID showed to a lot of people is that that's not the case, is that there are a lot of people out there who just aren't interested in in the kind of freedom, specifically freedom from government action, that those of us in libertarian camp are. One phrase that Pete Quinones has said is that a lot of libertarians have had this idea that, you know, we could we could live freely if we could just get to a point where we could just be left alone. But what he and others have realized is, as he says, they will never leave you alone. Yeah, it's, it's the old saying that uh, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Yeah. Yeah, Pete is one of the leading voices of what I'll call the broader post-libertarian movement. He's a guy who I've been paying attention to for a while. It's been interesting to see him kind of come up. He kind of came to fame as a as a Twitter meme lord with a handle MN Rothbard, and then eventually kind of came out with his with his real name, if that is his real name, um, and now has his own show called the Pequin. I think it's called the Pequinonis Show. But uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting watching kind of Pete's career develop because. Um, you know, we kind of had our podcast going like before he did, and then he kind of came in and and just started getting big. All of a sudden, it's like, man, like like what's he doing that we're not doing? <laughs> then, I can think of yeah. one thing: <laughs> recording episodes. Yeah, that's one thing. <laughs> the other thing is, I mean, you look at Pete, and he goes to all these like Mises Institute events. He shows up at all sorts of stuff. So you know, he's a guy that actually puts himself out there, does does the hard work, and you know. It, Every every amount of success that he has is is totally deserved in my view. He's he's just out there really hitting the pavement and and trying to make things happen. I also see Pete as a guy who is very much, I, I guess what you call intellectually courageous, and that he won't shy away from any idea, no matter how controversial it is. And I think a lot of the complaints that some of its critics probably have is that he's maybe gone a little too far with that, uh, where he's he's talking to some real kind of hardcore right wing types, people who are unabashedly racist or anti-Semitic or whatever. Now, it's it's become tedious to do the whole throat clear thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm not a racist. But the way I look at it is that this is an intellectual exploration that he's doing. You know, some of these, some of the stuff that I don't get on board with, you know, I don't know if Pete's really 100% on board with all this stuff. You know, when he has people on, he doesn't tend to argue with people too much. He kind of lets people speak their mind on his show. So I'm not going to jump on a high horse either criticizing Pete or defending him for having whatever certain people on with certain views or whatever. But it's been made clear that there are worse problems in the world. And generally, when someone's calling someone else a racist, they've got some other agenda that they're pushing. So the whole term racist has just lost its teeth. Well, and even more than that, I mean, I think that <laughs> the fact that it's become so common to you know call people racist or bigot for this or that or the other thing, you, you kind of get people on the other side saying, oh, yeah, is that what I am? Okay. And then they kind of like run with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's like, yeah. Oh, all right, well, maybe, maybe you're onto something. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I don't know. It's it's, it's a discourse that I I've kind of tried to avoid, and you know, I don't know. I I just lose interest. Like like as soon as I can, as soon as it's obvious that someone is starting from a position of some sort of um, you know racism, bigotry, whatever, that that's kind of like the starting point, and then everything else they're saying is sort of trying to justify that view. As opposed to, again, I'm not really on board with this, but there's a view where you could say, okay, well, I'm looking at all this data and it looks like immigration has increased and then crime has increased. I'm not saying this is real data, but whatever. Let's say, you know, these are sort of things that people talk about, right? 
Uh, immigration has increased. Crime has increased. We've had these specific events happen between certain different ethnic groups that don't get along in their own countries, and now they come over here and they don't get along over here. There's some arguments that like that that could be made from a sort of consequentialist point of view that, okay, maybe maybe you could start somewhere like that and, and end up with what would sound to someone else as a, as a racist conclusion. To be honest, I, again, I, I just don't get on board with a lot of that stuff. I think a lot of it's overblown. And, uh, and I just, again, I, I kind of lose interest. In a lot of cases, I just don't see race, ethnicity, that sort of thing as a causal factor in societal problems. You know, there's, um, th- these guys also talk a lot about culture. But I think I think culture can be separated from race or ethnicity. And again, I think I think a lot of that tends to be a bit overblown these days too. Well, look, I mean, I mean, obviously, racism in the past has been a, a huge factor. And even you know, as we talk about the built environment, I mean, uh, some of the earliest zoning ordinances were put in place for basically racist reasons. <laughs> and basically, they have words like protecting the moral character of the neighborhood, right? And what that meant in the 1930s was basically that all the people were of a certain race. Now, a lot of some of those got struck down earlier on with the Supreme Court, but the same, the exact same measures are still in place in in current day zoning. And even like things like moral character are still there in in you know, a lot of these zoning ordinances, there is this kind of pervasive, you know, what, what, what people enough would call like structural racism. I mean, one place where you do see it is in the kind of stuff we talk about in these zoning ordinances that segregate neighborhoods, certainly by, by economic class. Um, and of course, there are a lot of parallels between economic class and, and ethnicity and, and, you know, various communities and cultures and, and all of that. So, so I, I don't want to just I don't want to just hand wave it away and say like, oh, you know, racism ended in the you know 1967 or whatever it was. And even to this day, I think there's still there are still problems there. There are still problems of of perception and racial perception. And um, you know, I, I don't want to just hand wave that away. But at the same time, I think that then there are also people who, you know, as you said, kind of jump on that and will throw it in people's face at any chance they can get. It's this kind of slippery slope thing, which the people on the left, it's kind of their, their Mott and Bailey, is that they'll take, they'll take something that's a real issue, it's a real concern, and they'll pick it up and they'll just, and they'll just run right down the slippery slope with it all the way to the bottom. <laughs> well, what they do is they'll, they'll say like, okay, you know, they'll pick, pick some issue that really the issue is typically defined by more of a class than race. So it's more about, you know, um, you know poor people are affected by whatever it is. What they'll say is that, okay, well, you know, there's minorities that are that are more disproportionately poor, so therefore this policy disproportionately affects minorities. Therefore, if you you know support or oppose this policy, whatever it is, then that's because you're racist. So that's the Mutt and Bailey thing, right? So rather than arguing like the actual effects of the of the policy itself, you know, it goes straight to you're racist, and now I can dismiss you and you know try to get you to lose your job or whatever. You're the worst person since Hitler. So now that we've solved racism, um, post-libertarianism, what's it all about? <laughs> well, it's mostly about racism. <laughs> it's just libertarians who become racist. <laughs> That's right. So uh, the way I would define it is that it's basically people who have libertarian ideals in the sense of, you know, they want to live their own lives. They don't want to necessarily interfere with other people's lives, but they really have a focus on on a sort of pragmatism and strategy as to how do we actually achieve this sort of a world, taking into consideration the current world that we're starting from. And another term I'll define now is, is what they call lolberts, 
or which is like LOL, you know, like libertarian, LOL libertarians, right? Laugh out loud libertarians. So it's basically like libertarians who just aren't serious about actually achieving liber- liberty or whatever. Like us. <laughs> libertarians who just want to do a three-hour podcast talking about pure theory. <laughs> 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 with, with no practical application and no strategy on how to make it happen. I don't know who would listen to a podcast like that. Only if they had good uh, musical interludes. And even the term post-libertarian, I think a lot of the guys who, who I'd put into this camp, you know, they don't call themselves post-libertarian necessarily. I think it kind of makes sense. It's not a bad term. Although actually part of my criticism of post-libertarian is that they are still actually pretty libertarian. <laughs> they just they just don't like to talk about it. Their criticism of the Lalberts is that they're not serious. They're just gonna they're just preaching their theory and the morality about the non-aggression principle, and they're just never gonna affect any change in the real world. I think this is a valid critique to an extent. Because as Tim said earlier, it seems like people just it seems like even with all the libertarian podcasts that are out there and all the you know people on Twitter doing their thing, they're just a vast majority of the population that will never get on board with this philosophy, just because, for one thing, they would actually have to sit down and think about political philosophy for five minutes, and people, most people just aren't going to do that. They're just going to watch the sound bites on on the news and then form their opinions based on what the pretty people on TV tell them to think. I don't think that many people even watch those news shows anymore. No. <laughs> God bless them. Yeah. So look, I, I think I think it's a good wake up call for libertarians to think about. Okay, what what's my actual plan for realizing a freer or more libertarian life? I think there's a big piece of this that both sides of this of this schism are kind of missing. One critique of of libertarians is that they grab the non aggression principle, which is treated as kind of axiomatic, that it's this sort of irreducible truth that you can derive a lot of other morals from, and to a, a proper Lalbert. The non-aggression principle is a complete moral theory. It's basically, as long as someone doesn't commit aggression according to the non-aggression principle, then whatever they do is fine. So what the post-libertarians are saying is like, well, you know, that's ridiculous. Like there's, there's plenty of things that are, aren't, you know, that don't violate the NAP that are very objectionable. I mean, we've had some, some pretty, uh, you know, how many angels can dance on a head of a pin type discussions, even on our podcast about some of this sort of stuff. Someone trespasses on your property, just kind of walks across the corner of your lawn, you know, do you have the right to shoot them? <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, trespasses will be shot, you know, whether there's a proportionality and all this that comes into play. I think what's missing here is that the non-aggression principle and, you know, if you read Rothbard, Ethics of Liberty, chapter one, he says, look, this is purely a political philosophy, which means that it only deals with the scope of questions relating to when is it appropriate to use violence or when, it is, when, when is it morally justified to use violence. So there's a whole scope of stuff that is outside of whether or not you'd use violence that could still be treated under a broader system of, of ethics or morality. Um, you know, like, should you cheat on your wife or should you, should you be faithful to your wife? You know, that's, it's pretty hard to justify that as some sort of violation of a non-aggression principle. But I think a lot of people would see that there's some right and wrong going on in that situation that's beyond libertarianism. The way I see it is that liberty or adherence to the non-aggression principle is actually more of a means than an end. I, th- I think the, that the end, you know, at least the intended end of most moral systems, from libertarianism to communism to you know, Jucheism, if you're in North Korea or whatever, you know, the kind of stated end is, is a world that's more peaceful, more prosperous, and you know, leads to personal fulfillment. 
And of course, where those things differ is in the means and how you get there. And the way I see it is that some form of liberty is really more of a means to get to a more prosperous and peaceful society. And one where more people can be personally fulfilled because, you know, they have the freedom to do kind of what they want, pursue the pursue the, their own personal goals. I would compare this against something like, um, you know, something like maybe Christianity or, or, or other religions where it's like that's kind of a that's kind of a means and an ends all wrapped up into one. Like they kind of tell you what you should be shooting for as well as kind of how to get there. Shooting for Christ. <laughs> We're all shooting for Christ. <laughs> that's libertarianism in a nutshell. <laughs> Just shoot for Christ and you'll be a libertarian. So at least that that's what's attracted me to libertarianism is that is that I see it again from I think I've said this before that it, I I treat it as more from a consequentialist kind of perspective that you know I've kind of been convinced that free markets and more kind of laissez-faire governance tends to lead to just better outcomes all around for people from a from the perspective of peace prosperity all that kind of stuff we've seen that that communism uh, at least kind of state-run communism tends to do the opposite it tends to impoverish people. And it certainly restricts their freedoms along the way. And I'm going to take a step back here to what I would call more of a meta-morality or a meta-ethics. I thought we already were getting meta. <laughs> and we're meta of the meta. That's what libertarians do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In this meta-ethics, I would say that, that you know, or I'm talking about this, this sort of an ethics of ends and an ethics of means. Ludwig von Mises defined what he called, or what's been called as Misesian utilitarianism. Rather than saying that utilitarianism is whatever you can calculate to be what's best for the most people. He says, well, really, all you can do is you can say, okay, here's my stated ends. And what you can judge ethically or morally is to say, okay, well, do my selected means actually achieve my stated ends? This is where, again, you know, from Mises' perspective, you know, free markets would tend to achieve more of the ends that people that, that advocate for state-controlled solutions typically fail to achieve. So from a Misesian perspective, Free market solutions tend to be more moral simply because they actually achieve the ends that they're that they're shooting for. So I think there's, and I think this brings out something else, which is whether it's even possible to have any kind of an objective morality. I think that this Misesian utilitarianism is probably the the closest thing you can get to any kind of objective morality. I think that anything else, you know, including the non-aggression principle, is really a personal preference when it comes down to it. And really that, that all morality is subjective in some way or another. The non-aggression principle tends to come from a, a somewhat more axiomatic position that, you know, there has to be one set of ethics that everyone can agree on, you know, or, or at least one kind of ethical principle that everyone can agree on, you know, this sort of universalist approach. And this is what I think Stefan Molyneux used to call like universally preferable behavior, and he kind of derived a non-aggression principle from, from something like that. But there are plenty of people out there who just simply don't care about that. They don't care about whether or not your morals affect me. It's like, I think a lot of people see libertarianism the way that I might see something like fruitarianism, you know? So fruitarianism is these people that basically say that like, you know, trees can feel pain. So not only should you not eat animals, but you shouldn't eat any like plant product unless it's like fruit that has already fallen off of a tree. <laughs> is that a real thing? Yeah, I'm sure it's a real thing. Yeah, there, there are people out <laughs> Let's there. Let's make it a thing. <laughs> it is, it, I've, heard, I've heard stuff about this in the past. I mean, whether it's just like an exaggeration, I don't know. But, like, you know, okay, let's say it's, there are probably some people out there that will like this, right? You know, I'm only going to eat fruit that's fallen off a tree because I believe in the non-aggression principle and I don't want to aggress against trees, right? <laughs> let's, t let's make it a libertarian thing. <laughs> 
so I think I think a lot of people would say like, okay, yeah, okay, maybe we don't really know what trees can feel, right? Maybe it's possible that trees can feel pain, you know, but like, it's a weird thing to get worked up about. <laughs> and, and to be honest, like, I think that's the way most people see like libertarianism. It's like, okay, I'm not against your principle, you know, taxation is theft, you know, I've got property rights, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people look at that and go, okay, well, you know, but like roads are fine. And, uh, you know, it's a weird thing to get worked up about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I don't like paying taxes, but you know, at least I'm getting something for it. <laughs> and uh, I think that's the way a lot of people view libertarianism to the extent that they know anything about it. One of the divides that has developed between these kind of post-libertarians and lolberts, and I use that as a term of endearment. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we lolberts for real? <laughs> so after this, after this episode, I think that the post-libertarians will be calling us lolberts, and the, the actual lolberts will be calling us racist. Now, there is a point that centralized solutions, whether it's state-controlled or, or privatized somehow or whatever, do tend to have a natural efficiency to an extent. You know, you can hierarchies and these sort of things, you know, there's a reason that, that most companies in the world are structured as a hierarchy because, because it ends up being a fairly efficient way to distribute decision-making. And by efficient, I mean that decisions can be made relatively quickly and that changes can happen pretty quickly as opposed to something where a whole market has to develop for a change to happen. And I think this is a pretty valid critique of anarcho-capitalism is that you know a lot of ANCAPs essentially try to put everything into the box of some sort of market mechanism. Insurance companies. <laughs> yeah, or, or insurance companies, right? Yeah. <laughs> As if insurance companies are any less bureaucratic than governments. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so um, we've certainly been guil guilty of this in the past. And we've got a whole episode we've recorded that we haven't released yet about these sort of uh, blockchain solutions to the built environment. And I mean, part of the reason we haven't released that is because, you know, to be honest, I, I don't think I really believe a lot of what we said in there. We, we've kind of floated out a lot of ideas, but it's like, realistically, are you going to have some sort of tender process being mediated through a blockchain or something like that? It just seems like a this layer of complexity that, you know, the construction industry, they're, they're like the slowest to adopt any sort of new technology. <laughs> and uh, it's just, I, I just don't see this happening, you know? <laughs> Um, I thought we didn't release that episode because you've been working on your house and you just haven't edited it yet. <laughs> that's the other. That's the other reason. <laughs> Plus, we had to do that rap song. Well, look. In fairness, that episode was um, was kind of a spinoff of some of our Liberland work, and one of the the tasks of the design competition that we entered was to develop various blockchain type solutions for uh, for the development of this of this city state in, of Liberland, and so that was why we took that as a jumping off point. I, I think that with anything like that, there is there's a question of what kind of structure and organization uh, is most efficient. Now, some of the post-libertarian crowd takes this to a bit of an extreme where they're basically uh, advocating for a straight-up absolute monarchy as the best way to run society. And this is heavily influenced by Curtis Yarvin, who's a pretty interesting guy. He's definitely got some interesting views on kind of how society functions and how things work. He's one of the biggest influences in what I would call this post-libertarian movement and kind of the the kind of modern right wing in general. And before I get into Yarvin, I just want to make a comment that, you know, a lot of what you see from these post-libertarian guys is that they take pride in the fact that they've read political theory much more broadly than the standard kind of libertarian canon. So like the, you know, the Rothbard, the Hoppe, whatever. And Yarvin is a guy like this. So Yarvin, you know, started out reading Rothbard and then he read some Hoppe and that's following Hoppe is where he's really gone off in this more kind of monarchist angle. But 
you know, sometimes with these post-libertarian guys, it's like they, um, have you ever seen the movie Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back? No. The premise of the movie is that they're making a movie about Jay and Silent Bob and Jay and Silent Bob are pissed off because, you know, they don't think they're going to be represented fairly in the movie or whatever. Right. And so they deduce that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are, the, are going to be the guys to play Jay and Silent Bob in the movie. So they, the whole premise of the movie that they're going to Hollywood to kick the asses of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. <laughs> and so, and so they get to Hollywood and, uh, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are there filming uh, Goodwill Hunting 2, hunting season. <laughs> and, so, and so, spoiler alert. And so, uh, and, and so they, they, they've got, they basically recreated the scene from Goodwill Hunting where they're in the bar, like the Harvard bar. Yeah. And they've got like the same guy there from, from the original movie and everything. <laughs> the same actor. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they've got like Gus Van Zandt sitting in the background cussing, counting his money. So, you guys, just do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like it's like the only redeeming quality of that mo- that whole movie is this one scene. It's hilarious. <laughs> so the premise of this this scene is that that Matt Damon's been off in California with his girlfriend, and uh, and he comes back to Harvard, and and then that guy's there going, you know, the line he says, he he goes, well, you've been out with your girlfriend in California. I've read shit you've never even heard of. <laughs> and that's like and that's like the big put down. <laughs> and it's like you know, listening to a lot of these like post libertarian guys, it's like it's that guy. You know, oh, I've read shit you've never even heard of. <laughs> you know, I'm reading Julius Evola and I'm reading, uh, you know, uh, Sun Tzu and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like, hold on, you haven't read Sun Tzu? Not. I have read uh, Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power. I guess uh, that was a while ago, though. But see, I, I was reading that at the time from a more uh, libertarian, a Lalbert Rothbardian perspective. So I was like, oh, what's this guy talking about? You know, power is bad. Da, da, da. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I just wanted to get get that crack in there because, you know, it, it, every, every time I listen to these guys, it's like, that's what pops into my head. You know, I've read shit you've never even heard of. <laughs> And I, I guess just to, just to, just for some closure there, then at the end of the scene, <laughs> Will Hunting pulls out a shotgun, blows the guy away, he goes, it's hunting season. So Yarvin has some really interesting ideas. It's kind of hard to really pin him down because he's, he's kind of all over the place. Like he's, he, he covers a lot of ground and he's not that he contradicts himself much, but it's just kind of, um, you know, from, from one thing to the next, it's hard to figure out like, well, what is your actual like end that you're trying to achieve here? You know, I mean, sometimes it seems like for him that the the strategy is the end in itself almost. The closest I can I can get is from my reading is that he thinks that a stable government is ideal. You know, but but some sort of stable government that's you know obviously more aligned with his preferences, right? Mm-hmm. These guys tend to celebrate the Bolshevik Revolution a lot, I mean, not not for the the communism part of it, but but for like the actual strategy of it, like how it actually happened. You know, so so we'll talk about Lenin and stuff. A lot of what I get out of it is it, it seems to be a bit of like fantasizing. It's like if I were president sort of stuff. Yeah. Like that's huh. that's a big vibe I get from this whole post-libertarian crowd, right? It's, yeah. it's like they're basically like, okay, yeah, well, you got to get power and then you can, and then you got to do all the good things. So it's all about, okay, well, then how do we get the power? First of all, you know, good luck getting the power on a, on a message of like, you know, right-wing takeover in, in this day and age. Like talk about being out of touch with with the reality, right? <laughs> well, in fairness, what they what when they talk about this, they're usually at least at least I know Pete has really been talking a lot about this that they're looking at it doing things on a small scale. So, you know, if that's that's this kind of hoppy and covenant community strategy is is 
getting some, you know, some small town, some small place somewhere where you get a bunch of like-minded people together, or maybe there's, you know, it's a place that there are people who are already more or less like-minded with you when you move there and start making things happen on that, on that small scale. You know, it's kind of a big fish in a small pond kind of approach, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, but the thing is, is when you're listening to these guys on podcasts and stuff, they're talking at at this broader scale of like, oh, this is how you change a whole society. But yeah, that's true that when you look at what, okay, well, what are the actual concrete actions that you're that you're promoting? It is that smaller scale covenant community kind of approach, which the thing, you know, and this is where my, where I'm saying that I think that, you know, post-libertarians aren't actually non-libertarian. Like that's, that's been like the canonical libertarian solution for a long time. Huh. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is what people, I mean, at least since, you know, Hopper, when, I don't know when Hopper wrote that piece back in probably the nineties or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think so. Promoting these covenant communities and stuff. And it's like, and it's like, that's not a, that's not a post-libertarian idea. That's a libertarian idea. I mean, you read Hopper. The thing is, you know, a lot of these guys will say, call themselves Hoppians. Like they're, they're really into Hoppe. I think they tend to read Hop a bit selectively. You know, if if you read you read Hoppe and there, he, he talks about this stuff and throughout it he's talking about yeah well like you're doing this to to preserve like a libertarian libertarian ideals and to realize property rights and all this sort of stuff. I I just don't see that th- to be honest. Like you know the the only thing these guys depart from libertarianism in is where they say that they are willing to kind of use the means of government to sort of achieve this this kind of libertarian ends you know that the whether it that's through some sort of electoral process or some other sort of political coup process or whatever that they fantasize about yeah that's i mean and that's i think that's one of their biggest criticisms is that libertarians are so averse to any kind of power any kind of state power government power you know voting <laughs> uh, you know there are a lot of libertarians um present company possibly included who you know don't who don't vote like as a matter of principle you know it's like well i'm not going to vote because then that that's somehow like some kind of consent for the system or some kind of acquiescence to you know the system as it exists and none of the people i'm voting for you know want what i want anyways and so what these post-libertarians argue it's like well no you need to actually kind of take that on and take on and get people get people running for office and start to drum up some support and I think there's some validity to that. But to me, it's like a lot of times these post-libertarian arguments, it's, they make it sound like the most revolutionary thing you can do is to like go somewhere that's already Republican and vote for Republicans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's an act of revolution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my reason for not voting is just I think it's, it's pretty much ineffectual. I mean, I have this post that I wrote called Disempowerment by Democracy, where I did this mathematical proof <laughs> with all these charts and graphs and stuff about you know how, how little power you have when you vote. And uh, it was, it's funny because I actually, I had done an update of that around the, the time of the 2020 election. And um, I had actually sent it to Pete at the time he was an, an editor for the, I think it was a Libertarian Institute. And so I sent it to him, you know, to see if he could get it published on there. And um, the timing of it didn't work out because it was like basically like the election was already over by the time I had sent it to him. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's kind of like off topic at this point. Um, and, and, you know, he, he did respond to me with, you know, I've, uh, I've actually emailed him a couple of times with various things, you know, just kind of, um, you know, sending him some articles and stuff like that. And, and he actually always responds like right away, but all, but, you know, kind of cordially and, and all that stuff. And um but it's funny because because after I had sent him that, it, it wasn't very long after that that he was on some other podcast or something. This is when he was just kind of really starting to get into this, I guess what you call the post-libertarian kind of mindset. 
he starts making this comment like, oh yeah, you're not going to convince people to libertarianism by showing them a bunch of charts and graphs. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's, wonder where you got that from. <laughs> I mean, at the time there was all this COVID graphs and stuff going around too. So I mean, that was probably more, <laughs> yeah. more what it was. But <laughs> I know, I'm sure he was talking about you. I obviously made an indelible mark upon his psyche and pushed him, <laughs> pushed him away yeah, he's from, like... from, from libertarianism. Okay, this is stupid. <laughs> this is not working. You know, the, the whole voting thing, it's like, I've always been kind of apathetic about it. But I will say that, you know, of course, you and I were born and raised in New Hampshire, and now we have the Free State Project here, which, of course, I've, I've been to and sponsored and, and spoken at a number of their events um, over the past, what, five or six years. And seeing what they've been able to accomplish in New Hampshire, it starts to kind of prove out that that I guess it's on some level the, like the Hoppian approach of consolidating, getting a bunch of people together in one place, and then working to change the system politically. They are getting a lot of people elected to state office, and New Hampshire it's like it's like the third largest legislative body in the world, so <laughs> they have like four hundred or something like representatives at the state house. And so it's basically like, to some extent, it's almost like a volunteer job in some of these places. But a lot of free staters have have gotten in there and have you know gotten on committees and and really started to do some some pretty radical things um, from a libertarian perspective. Yeah, and you don't hear a lot of these post libertarians talking too much about the free state project, or you know, let alone moving to New Hampshire and, and joining in with that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I, I actually met Pete at a, a Free State Project event a few years ago. Oh yeah, well, Pete goes to everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, he's obviously aware of it, and hopefully, he has a sense of of what's going on here. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot of discussion either for or against the Free State Project from the sort of post libertarian crowd. What they're more vocal about is criticizing the Libertarian Party and the efforts of the the Mises Caucus. Uh, with this kind of recent takeover that they've done of the Libertarian Party, the post-libertarians, as you said before, tend to favor more of a strategy of supporting whoever's the most likely to succeed against a leftist candidate, uh, which in most cases is going to be some sort of Republican. So they tend to view the Libertarian Party candidates as someone who's just going to split the vote and hurt the chances of some you know, local Republican getting a seat as opposed to you know, whatever Democrat progressive wacko he's up against. So the post-libertarians are really focused on strategy. And as we've said, you know, the strategies that they tend to promote are more of a local approach to try to do some sort of covenant community thing or, or at least form a local community, uh, which is something that we've talked about before back on, I think it was episode 20, where we had talked about the importance of community and how a lot of libertarians get really focused on the individualist aspect of libertarianism and tend to view any sort of community building as some form of collectivism or, or statism. This is another kind of valid critique that the post-libertarians have of libertarians to an extent, because again, there are libertarians that take this view that like, you know, the only way to, to be free is to go get yourself a cabin in the woods and isolate yourself from society. In my Disempowerment by Democracy blog piece, I kind of, uh, I, get, I also gave a mathematical proof as to why that's not really a great strategy. <laughs> so I think we can claim that we were ahead of the curve and we were actually talking about community and uh, post-libertarian stuff before it was cool. I'd, I'd say that we're really the ideological vanguard of this whole movement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, I'll, I'll come back to that, that whole talk I gave, episode 20. I was talking about you know, my reflections from this travel experience I had of, about how important community is in some places. And the argument I was making was that it, it's also important for the liberty movement 
And what inspired me to talk about that was that that's what I've observed as I've gotten to know people in the Free State Project is that really the biggest strength of the Free State Project isn't their political action. To me, it is the the community that they've built and the fact that they have this place where people can come and whatever kind of you know interest group or whatever you're into you know in this in this whole libertarian sphere, it's like there's like a Thursday night meetup for that somewhere in the state of New Hampshire. <laughs> You can probably go to a Bitcoin meetup like every night of the week, somewhere in New Hampshire. And there's the different regions of New Hampshire have there are a couple of them who have their own their own clubhouses. Like the Shell is one that if you've listened to Dave Smith, like Robbie the Fire Bernstein, he's come and, and he's uh, he's given comedy shows there. There's another one called the Praxium here in the Seacoast area of New Hampshire. There's one in the Manchester area. There's one in the Keene area. And so these are places where these group of people have gotten together and actually like purchased property. They purchased buildings <laughs> where they can get together and, and have events. And so it's funny, like when I, when I hear a lot of these like kind of post-libertarian guys talking about, oh, it'd be so great if we could get a bunch of people together in one place and, you know, and they all shared these values and we could, you know, build community and we could raise families and we could, you know, homeschool them together and we could have farmer's markets where, you know, we could all sell each other's stuff and whatever. It's like... The Free State Project has been doing that stuff for years here in New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah so these, yeah, so the post-libertarian guys, they do critique this libertarian party strategy uh, where this Mises caucus, with the comedian Dave Smith as a figurehead, has kind of taken over this libertarian party with the worst kept secret in politics, which is that, you know, Dave Smith is most likely going to be the libertarian candidate in 2024 for president. Dave's a guy who has achieved some pretty good success as a comedian. He gets on Joe Rogan probably a couple times a year, so he's got a huge reach beyond just a straight up liberty audience. You know, he's just got a he's just got a comedy audience that he reaches. But when he goes on a show like Joe Rogan, you know, a lot of what he's talking about is the sort of libertarian messaging. That's got a huge reach, millions of people, and people who who would probably be sympathetic to this message. And so the strategy that they're pursuing, I mean, it, it's kind of multi pronged. You know, they've got they are pursuing a strategy of getting people elected in local positions. And that, that's actually where they're putting a lot of their efforts at the moment. So again, if you look at what the Mises Caucus is actually doing, it's spot on with what these post-libertarians are advocating. It's just that whether it's an L or an R after the candidate's name, the post-libertarians might argue that the L stands for liability and that it's not running as a Republican is going to hurt you just because of the, you know, the brand awareness issue. Well, look, I mean, I think there is some truth to that. I mean, you know, I mentioned all the, the free staters that have been elected here in New Hampshire. I think most of them, if not all of them at the state level, have been elected as Republicans. You know, they've run as a Republican candidate. I think there are some that have run as, as either Democrats or independents, maybe even libertarians at like for local office. But for the most part, where they've had electoral success has been um, running as Republicans for state office. Yeah. And I think with this Mises caucus strategy, you know, they have also said that if there's a Republican candidate, who's demonstrated that they actually are in line with, with libertarian values and that they'll push a libertarian message. You know, someone like a Thomas Massey is probably the best example of this, that they're not going to run someone against someone like that as just to try to get a, an L behind the guy's name on the ballot. So I think the post-libertarian critique of, of the Mises caucus strategy is twofold. One is that it, there's this sort of vote-splitting thing that could happen. And the other is that it's sort of an opportunity cost where it's like if you're going to put time and effort into politics, you want to do it with a party that has that broader reach and a naturally better chance of winning the election. I think that there's actually a lot less conflict between these sort of post-libertarian and, you know, lol, and let's call it the Lalbert strategy, especially with the Dave Smith. I, I mean, I think Dave Smith really gives us a unique opportunity with someone who already has a big following 
who has access to some of these big platforms that he can get his message out. Just as a PR stunt, you know, running for president is going to get you a lot of publicity. And I think Dave is a really great messenger for libertarianism. He just has a knack for getting right down to the meat and bones of an issue in a way that non-ideological people can relate to. And he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't, really, he doesn't play games. He just comes off as a very genuine, straightforward guy. I think he does have a message that could resonate with a lot of people. And that by running for president, we could see him getting on a lot more TV screens and whatever else in front of people. And if nothing else, if he can get up onto a debate stage with like, you know, what Donald Trump and Joe Biden, like, can you imagine the massacre that's going to be? <laughs> if nothing else, just for the entertainment value, it would be great. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think part of the, the libertarian strategy there of running libertarian candidates, um, even in close races where they could be potentially splitting a vote, for one thing, as you said, getting, about getting the message out. But the other is, if these Republican candidates, or you know, in some cases it's Democrats too. I mean, people have shown that in some races, you know, the Libertarians have pulled votes away from Democrats. Part of the strategy is that you don't have to necessarily win an election, but if you can be enough of a threat to one or or the other of the candidates, then you could potentially kind of bring them to a a negotiating table, at least at least kind of rhetorically, where you try to pull them towards your side of certain issues and get them talking about the issues that you want to be talking about. And, you know, even if you don't win the debate, it's about forcing the debate to happen on certain issues. So I think there's more to it than just looking at, you know, a libertarian campaign and saying, oh, you know, they only got 3% of the vote. <laughs> I think there can be opportunities to influence uh, the discourse um, during these campaigns and at least make sure that the issues we care about are being discussed and that we're forcing these other candidates to take a position one way or the other on them. Another aspect of what I'll call the Dave Smith strategy, as it relates to the more post-libertarian strategy, I mean, the post-libertarian guys, again, following Hoppe, talking about raising up well-respected elites or, or kind of you know aristocrats within their communities into positions of, of power, either in local government or in other forms of local leadership. Now, the way I see it is that there's probably a lot of these local elites, which you might call them, you know, these are people who are just generally well-respected within their communities, whether as business people or, I don't know, church leaders or other people like that, who are potential candidates for this sort of an approach. The problem is that a lot of these guys, a lot of these type of people probably just don't know or care about libertarianism because they're just normies like everybody else. You know, even though they're successful, you know, they probably don't like taxes, but they're not necessarily motivated to achieve, let's say, libertarian goals. And I think that by having someone like Dave Smith putting out his message there, there's a chance that he could reach a lot more of these type of people and bring them over to a more cohesive libertarian type philosophy, at least an understanding that there is a philosophy out there like this, and that you might see some of these people you know, become more aligned with libertarianism and with the same kind of goals that the, uh, that the post-libertarians are trying to achieve. So I see the post-libertarian and the Mises caucus strategies as being really more complementary than antagonistic. There might be a few small cases where, okay, someone runs a libertarian candidate and, and someone else runs a, a post-libertarian candidate somewhere and, and they've got to go toe-to-toe -to -toe against each other about issues like age of consent. <laughs> they always get us on age of consent. <laughs> but in general, I think these guys are, you know, they're wasting more time complaining about each other then either of them is wasting time pursuing their own strategies. I mean, I think you got to look at it more as like a, an, an ecosystem of strategies, that there's, there's multiple overlapping strategies that can complement each other. 
at different scales as well as in different strategies. And you know, the the, re- the reality is like everyone's got different strength. You know, I'm never going to run for public office because I mean, I'm here in Australia where where they had all these lockdowns. Now, luckily in Adelaide, we didn't get hit as hard as like Melbourne. But so maybe maybe my views would be different if I, if I was stuck over there. But for my personality type and the things that I'm interested in, running for office is just the farthest thing from my both from my capability set as well as what I could actually tolerate doing. I'd vote for you. You'd be forced to if you were in Australia. <laughs> it's compulsory. <laughs> and even in Australia, even if even if I were to go for my what city council or something, like the way it's set up here, you just don't have these little local councils that you can get on the board. Even like so, I've just invested in a little beach property about an hour about an hour away from Adelaide, and even down there, the local council covers like the entire southern coast. Of Australia, as well as a whole bunch of like you know the the inland farming communities, it's like this this regional government thing, and so it's not like you can go okay, I'm going to go down to my local town council, and we're going to we're going to vote on you know what's going to happen, are we going to build a library this year? It just just doesn't happen. It, it's even at that level of a of a small town around here, it's all regionalized. It's like you know like we've talked before about like Agenda 21 stuff with these regional <laughs> governments. It's like yeah, well that's Australia. <laughs> it's like we're there, man. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's actually, that's another, I guess, strength of New Hampshire with the Free State Project is that, you know, it does have this colonial, you know, New England township model of, of governance where, you know, even like a lot of America, like the county level is a big deal. Like in New Hampshire, I mean, New Hampshire is like the size of a county in a lot of other places. Right. And it's really, it's really carried on this tradition of like the town meeting as the kind of fundamental level of government. So I don't know, maybe that's something that, that I've kind of taken for granted around here is that is that there is a lot of opportunity for public access and public participation. I mean, I was on I was on a building committee for um for a building in my town recently and you know there's there's plenty of opportunity. If I wanted to be on the planning board, I could probably walk onto the planning board next week if I wanted to. You know, it's like there's yeah. there's plenty of there's there are there are opportunities to get involved at the local level and at the same time like the that the, the town councilors, um, I mean, I know a handful of them just kind of on a personal basis, uh, just through a handful of interactions we've had over, you know, we talked about the whole short-term rental thing, one of her episodes. These are people you can talk to and you can get an audience with and, and they'll listen and they'll hear you out and they won't always agree with you, but I don't know. I mean, there, there's something to be said for that of having a place where where there is a much more localized uh, form of government. Yeah. So like I said, like, you know, I just don't see that strategy even, I don't even know where you'd start in Australia. If, if, I mean, I, there's probably other places that are more, and obviously the further you get away from the cities, the more uh, local control you're going to have over stuff. But again, then you, you're, it, it's the same kind of like the, you know, the guy going to live in the woods. It's like, well, yeah, you've got, you've got your autonomy now, but you're lacking access to, you know, the reason people people build cities is because they're, they're markets, you know, it's a big labor market. It's a big market for everything you want to get. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if you're going the hardcore right wing thing going, well, you know, I don't need material goods, which actually was a right wing thing before it was a left wing thing. <laughs> then, yeah, maybe you can find yourself a trad wife and move back to the land and, you know, do it on your own. But the reality is that that's not a sacrifice that most people are going to make that a lot of people want to make. And, and, you know, more power to you if if you're happy with that lifestyle. But you know, I'm I can barely grow grass in my backyard, let alone grow my own food. <laughs> and you call yourself a fruitarian? Well, when I have tried to grow carrots, they come out looking like something from the island of Doctor Moreau. <laughs> so I could see someone coming to my garden 
and becoming a fruitarian after they see the sort of cruelty that, that I inflict on vegetables. All right, so we just listened to your whole Yarvinian-style rant on this whole thing. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me give a few thoughts of, of how, I, how I think about some of this stuff. I think it comes back to this kind of dichotomy, which is maybe a false dichotomy, between liberty and power. Libertarians often reject power as a valid means of, of achieving their ends, whereas you know these post-libertarians, they see power as the end in itself <laughs> and are willing to forego, or at least downplay the, I guess, constraints that they see a libertarian mindset placing on them. I want to go back to a framework that I talked about in that episode 20 that we've brought up a couple times here, where we were talking about the importance of community. Uh, the way to frame that was, I think that for everyone, something that's that's close to a universal desire is what I'll call freedom. That's a word I made up. But what it means is, <laughs> and the way I define that is the ability to act according to your will. And I think that's something that really everybody strives for, but we need to break that down into its kind of component parts. So the first part is the ability to act. Well, what's that? That's power, right? And power can certainly mean political power, the ability to persuade or coerce other people to do what you want to have happen. It can also mean economic power, which is another form of an ability to persuade people, but it's obviously through uh, the means of exchange rather than threats of force or some kind of you know political collectivism. And then there's technological power, which is you know ha obviously um, having greater knowledge and understanding of the way the world works and and being able to engineer your way out of out of certain problems. All of these forms of power improve your ability to act. So then the second part of that definition is the ability to act according to your will. And that's what I'll call liberty. So with my definition, you know, liberty is something that's distinct from freedom, although it obviously can be, be a component of it. So acting according to your will means that other people don't have the ability to prevent you from acting in the way that you want to act. You know, and, the, and there can be different categories of liberty as well. You know, you can have obviously political liberty where you are free from from a government coercion or, or, or any kind of coercion from people around you. There's social liberty where you don't feel constrained by, let's say, the social norms of your community or other people around you. There's economic liberty. Again, if you, this is obviously there are parallels here between the liberty side of things and the power side of things, but if you are financially independent, then it's going to be a lot easier for, for you to act according to your will because you don't have to spend time as an employee, you know, working for somebody else or, you're trying to find ways to perform services for other people to get money, and on and on. I'm sure you could come up with some other categories there, but that that's a general idea that that liberty and power are really kind of two branches of this this concept of freedom, and I think that they're always interacting with each other. Both, you know, as an individual, you have various uh, forms of power available to you, and you have various aspects of liberty that apply to the actions you want to take. So I think there's a fair criticism that libertarians you know, focus so much on the liberty side of things and not enough on the, the power side of that equation, whereas you know, the post-libertarians kind of turn a blind eye to the liberty side of things and see power as the only means of, of achieving that, that freedom that they want to achieve. I would say, I don't know if it's really a blind eye that they're turning to. I, I would say that the, the post-libertarians, at least kind of like from what Pete has said, is that you know his, what's really driving him is opposition 
to having people who you don't agree with have power over you. So it's like, you know, so we had all these kind of leftist progressive governors imposing all these restrictions during COVID. And I think from the the post-libertarians, what they would say is basically like the power is conserved, is that it, it can it can neither be created nor destroyed, that that there's always someone who's gonna have power. And it's really just more of a, a question of distribution and whether, you know, whether you have it or whether your enemies have it. And so I think they would be looking at that that liberty side of things going, okay, well, yeah, but this your your liberty is is really is really a question of someone else having power over you. Right? How much how much liberty you how much liberty you have is is sort of the inverse of how much power someone else has over you. So I think the approach that they take is to say, okay, well then, if I want to have that liberty, then I have to get that power in order to uh, you know prevent someone else from having it over me. Yeah, and I guess I would challenge that. I mean, for one thing, I've heard that before, but th- this concept that you know power is conserved, like like you know energy in the universe, I don't buy that because for one thing, as I said, there are these different forms of power. You know, are you telling me that that the poorest person today who has a smartphone doesn't have much more power than than the wealthiest person, you know, a thousand years ago. I think if you look at power as something that that isn't a zero sum game, but is something that can in- increase really for every individual over time, certainly with technology as well as as well as, you know, economics through capital accumulation and, you know, the built environment, all the things that we build in the world around us, you know, we're, we're all the recipients of previous generations um, expenditures of things that they've built for us to use. Although, of course, you know, the strong town's argument would be that those things are liabilities, but we'll set that aside. And these guys, especially the ones who are like into the whole absolute monarchy thing, basically they tend to say, okay, well, what we need to do is we got to find one guy that really agrees with me and then get make him the absolute monarch. It's like, <laughs> you know, again, it's like, it's like, yeah, if I were president, right? I've been thinking about, you know, how does this where would the power be? You know, we talk about this sort of idea of an, an Ancapistan society, right? So if you had this society where you actually had private entities that performed all the functions that, that governments do now, whether that would be an improvement over the status quo or whether that would actually just devolve back into just another state by another name. And the post-libertarians tend to kind of see it as, um, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and there's like the iron law of oligarchy basically saying that no matter what political system you have, you end up with oligarchy in the end. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, whatever other political systems you have, you know, that they, they there are kind of tendencies in them for people to align themselves with each other and, and form these sort of oligarchies. I was thinking that, you know, and again, of course, this is all theoretical. Never been done, never been done before. Except the medieval Iceland. <laughs> I don't know if they had capitalism back then, but the if you had your ANCAP society, and of course, yeah, for for now I'm skipping the whole the whole question of how do we get there. I, I know, all right. But if you had it, you know, this is the question about is is it could it be stable and could it could it maintain the outcomes that you want? The way I look at it, you know, Curtis Yarvin talks about having these revolutions by building this sort of shadow government, right? That can come and and once you once you have this um, bloodless coup or whatever that takes over the the government, then you've already got this shadow government in place that can already perform all the functions of the previous government, but in a way that Curtis Yarvin would approve of better. So I look at this sort of, you know, Ancapistan situation where the the premise is that you'd have these competing corporations performing these functions. So the way I look at that is that you'd have, rather than having this kind of winner takes all, you know, coup that would have to happen, even if you had a monopoly in one place, for whatever reason, you know, that, that corporation 
goes out of business or, or something that, you know, whatever, they go bankrupt, they, they screw things up. Your shadow government is all the other corporations that are competing with them that then could come in and provide those functions. So I think that even from a Yarvinian perspective, there's an argument to be made for an Ancapistan-type solution. You know, I think actually the, the strongest argument against that particular criticism is the part that you skipped over, which is how do we get there? And what I hear from both libertarians and post-libertarians is this idea that we're going to you know, take the system that exists now, hit delete, and then hit copy and paste on some other system and insert it into place you know, where that one was wholesale. And of course, that's not what's going to happen anywhere. I mean, yeah, of course, you have revolutions that happen sometimes some places. But I think in order to get sustainable results, especially um, on, on, for libertarian goals, we really have to look at all the parts and pieces. So in other words, it's not like I'm going to march down to City Hall and, you know, take over my town and institute you know, my, my, my libertarian monarchy or whatever it is. Like, that's not how it's going to happen. But, you know, maybe I could convince my town, like, look, you know, um, where do we have this municipal trash service right now that we're paying for? Um, it looks like we're like running into the red on that. Maybe we could just open that up to competition and, and just start charging people a fee for trash service. And then if other people want to come in and, and provide competing trash service, then they can do that. You know, and then you get to the point which I actually have in my town right now, which is we don't have municipal trash service that you can either take your own trash to the dump or you can get a service to come and, and pick up your trash. We have someone who comes and it's like, I don't know, it's like six bucks a week or something. We pay someone to come and, and pick our trash up and take it to the dump. And, you know, you talk to people in cities like who have had like trash services all their life. And it's like it's like wild that, you know, that the government doesn't just take your garbage away from your house for you. But then you look at places that that don't have that. And it's like, well, this isn't such a big deal, you know. And then you, you keep going down that ladder. It's like, well, look at schools. It's like, well, you know, there, there's a whole movement now of, you know, not necessarily disbanding public schools outright, but having the money follow the student. So in other words, we still keep the, the whole tax scheme, tax funded scheme, whatever for education. But instead of, you know, government taking taxes and buying a school building and buying administrators, or they can still do that. They can still do that. But it's just instead of them just getting that money outright, that money goes with the student. If the student chooses to go to that to that school, then that school gets the money. And that opens a door for other schools to come in and compete or for students to, you know, go to schools in neighboring towns and, and really find the situation that's best for them. You know, of course, we have school choice, something like that in a lot of places. There's voucher systems and various things, which are kind of steps in that direction. But um, again, you know, this isn't like a wholesale replacement of government but i mean the school school system in my town it's fits half of our budget so if if there's some way that a school system could be more liberalized and open to to market solutions then that's a step in the right direction and then you get to stuff we talk about like roads right <laughs> i mean you have a city that ha you have a town that has a network of roads that right now you know you pay for based on the, the value of your house <laughs> right it's like imagine like you go to the grocery store and like you come up with a with you know a big a whole cart full of groceries and they ring them up and then you pull out your credit card to pay and they say okay and now how much is your house worth <laughs> <laughs> and they charge you for your for the food you're buying based on how much your house is worth i mean that that's how right now how we're paying for roads how we pay for schools how we pay for everything that our, at least our local governments do but there's a total disconnect between what people are using or consuming between the costs 
of, of operation and between what individual people are, are actually willing to pay. So if you, if you get to some kind of a, you know, a user fee based system for, for roads and there are all kinds of levels of that, it could be you pay a toll to, you know, to, to drive within a, a particular zone for the day or some places have, you know, vehicle miles traveled where they look at the total miles or travel you've traveled in your car and then you pay some kind of road tax based on that. You can imagine with modern technology that you could have some kind of tracking of what roads people actually drive on and how much they owe. And, and look, you know, for the, for the libertarians, you just freaked out when I said that, that episode we haven't released yet. We've talked about ways in which that could be done anonymously where everything's encrypted and, and where you can separate the billing from the actual, you know, location tracking, but at least then you're actually having people pay for what they're using and, and paying for the roads that they're utilizing. And on and on. So when you try to think of, you know, replacing a government, you know, with some more uh, free market oriented system, it's hard to think of taking it and replacing it wholesale. But if you start to think of the parts and pieces that actually make up that government, what the actual services are that it's providing, it's not hard to think of ways that those can be liberalized in incremental ways. And even in incremental ways that are not only acceptable to the the local community, but possibly even advantageous. You think of like some failing towns and cities like, you know, like a Detroit or something. And if you could find a way to privatize those roads and, and have people, you know, pay for usage of them and not have the government own them as a liability, I mean, that might be a big win for for the people in that place. There's one strategy that Pete was promoting a couple of years ago called the anti-tax where the idea is that you you pitch this this plan to your your local council where it's essentially building like a sovereign wealth fund for your local council. Basically the idea is that you know you, you take your taxes, you take whatever budget surplus you have and you put that into, you know, some sort of interest-bearing investments or or stock market or whatever. That's based on using some sort of budget excess. My main concern with this is is you know if you've followed strong towns at all, which we covered in I think it was episodes 23 and 24, we interviewed Chuck Marone of Strong Towns. Local towns are all insolvent. Like they don't have this extra money floating around. Or if they do, they've got so much, you know, federal government debt, or it's all coming from federal subsidy to build these infrastructure projects, which, you know, they have no way of maintaining. Even if they are technically solvent on the books in terms of finances, it's still what you could call physically insolvent in terms of um, being able to actually maintain the, the infrastructure that's in their town. This is a point that Chuck made, that Chuck Marone made on a recent Strong Towns podcast. Where he was talking about um, there was some water system that had, in, I think it was Jackson, Mississippi, that had failed. Basically saying, like, this is what a default looks like. It's like the bondholders are still getting paid. The cash is still flowing. But it's the residents who are paying the price with this, with this failed infrastructure that they can't use anymore. And it's at a point where it's going to take a lot of money to, to repair this infrastructure. And so this anti-tax strategy, you know, he talks about places like, you know, Scandinavia, where they've got where they've got these sovereign wealth funds, it's like, well, yeah, Scandin- you know, Scandinavia also has a fair bit of oil <laughs> that they that they produce, you know, and and, and you notice that, that 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 tends to be the case with a lot of these places that have these sovereign wealth funds that, that they have some sort of valuable commodity that they're exporting to be able to build all this sovereign wealth. So if you want to be able to enact this sort of strategy in a local town, first you've got to find a local town that is physically solvent. You know that actually does have kind of real money that they could invest. Otherwise, you've got to build up your town to a point where it is strong and where it can provide for itself and maintain all this infrastructure. Yeah, and again, a big way to to achieve that is to 
actually have fees for service or fees for use of this infrastructure who are using and are actually paying for what they're using. Yeah, because that at least aligns the incentives. Right. And if and if you have a whole bunch of roads in your town that are money losers, you know, all the cul-de-sacs with six houses on them, where they have to pay, you know, a hundred bucks every time they drive down the road to get to their house, you're not going to have as many of those type of developments anymore. If we actually have to align uh, payments for roads and other infrastructure with the cost of that infrastructure. And I think understanding this sort of strong town's message, again, is a way that you could bring these things in and introduce them to people without having to preach, you know, libertarian dogma to them. You know, you can basically come to them at the local level talking about issues that they actually care about, real world issues. But from this perspective of, you know, building up that strong town, the strong community, but in a way that is aligned with your libertarian values. And so this is something that can be done, you know, rather than rather than saying, oh, we're going to come in and take over the local council and then we're going to abolish the schools and and do all the things we want to do because now we've got the power. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that's just that antagonism is not going to get you anywhere, you know, especially at the local level where, you know, people know where you live. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's one thing for Lenin to do it. You know, well, well, look at all these all these all these revolutionaries, you know, these coups that have happened, these Yarvinian coups that have happened over the years. It's like, well, look who each of those was funded by. Right. And you think that that your strategy that goes up against the people that were would fund those sort of coups is is going to be successful. It's like, you know, unless you've got unless you've got Rockefellers and Morgans and Rothschilds and all those kind of guys, you know, funding you, then uh, you know a a heavy hand is probably not going to serve you very well in a local community. Well, we've got the Koch brothers, right? Aren't they? Are they sponsors <laughs> or no? Do they, do they have they dropped us on Patreon yet? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't one of them die recently? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I think that um, by you know really listening to our podcast and listening to the things that we talk about is really the only way forward if you want a libertarian society. So zooming out from this strategy discussion, I think more broadly you could say that the ANCAP strategy is to try to decentralize institutions and hope that they can stay decentralized. Whereas I think the post-libertarian strategy is more to assume that institutions will become centralized and to get your friends into the oligarchy, you know, and then hope that they aren't going to be captured by progressives. And another aspect of the ANCAP strategy that I mentioned before, where we've got these private entities performing these different functions in a competitive situation, is that each of these corporate—I'll call them corporations, even though, as we've discussed before, these could be co-ops or or other arrangements—they don't strictly have to be corporations in the sense that that we see today. But I'm going to use the term corporations just because I don't want to list a whole bunch of words every time I have to say this. So this other aspect of the ANCAP strategy is that each of these corporations has a more limited scope in terms of what they're actually doing. So you might have a corporation or a competitive market of corporations that are you know, focused on waste management or another one that's, that's focused on water utilities and power utilities and that sort of stuff. And at the moment, we, we do have this in some places where you have some competition, even for what you, what you might consider to be natural monopolies like utilities, especially in the power industry, which I'm more familiar with. There's a lot of competition and also kind of stratification of how these corporations are set up, where you have certain entities that are generating the power, you have other entities that own the transmission lines, and then you have other entities who are more commercially focused with wholesaling electricity and then retailing it to customers. So at each of these levels, there is some competition and, and some markets that are in place. And so I see this as being somewhat resilient to the iron law of oligarchy, where 
these corporations aren't necessarily focused on you know taking over the whole society and making the rules for everybody on everything. The fact that they are limited in scope as to what they're doing, I think could give them some immunity to the impetus to form a more oligarchical society. Now, of course, we do th see things like mergers and consolidation, but a lot of that stuff is driven by federal government largesse in terms of low interest rates and easy money. When you see all these mergers happening, usually that's a pretty good sign that you're at the peak of a bubble. So as usual, it all comes back to ending the Fed. That goes along well, I think, with what I was saying about the strategy of, of kind of taking parts and pieces of what a city government does and trying to privatize or at least, or at least um, kind of liberalize the way that these individual services are rather than some grandiose scheme of you know, replacing a government wholesale. I think that the most important kind of first step there is to charge fees for services uh, as much as possible, services and infrastructure, so that, as we said before, you start to get some kind of rational pricing system for these services. That does a couple of things. For one, as we said, it should make them you know, more fair, more kind of, a more kind of rational distribution of who's paying for what they use. But the other thing it does is it starts to create more of a, of a market-based value for those assets or services, whatever they are. So in other words, like with roads, we've argued against the kind of Hoppian strategy of, of privatizing roads, where essentially you turn them all over to the taxpayers in some kind of proportion to what people have paid in taxes. We've In our episode 19, I had challenged that whole argument. I, think, I don't think it makes a lot of sense from a libertarian theory standpoint or from a practical standpoint. But what you could do is you could put in a road use pricing scheme of some sort, like we mentioned before, where this road system is not being funded by tax dollars. And that way, then, whatever they're actually collecting through, through a tax system, whether it's property taxes or income taxes or whatever, whatever they're collecting through a tax system then is funding a, a smaller pool of services. And so, again, the more things that you can go down the line and start to charge service fees for rather than just paying for out of a pot of, say, property taxes, I might even argue that as long as you have a service that isn't being funded by taxes, that you know maybe we wouldn't even call that a government service, or at least maybe it doesn't, or at least it doesn't have the same stigma and the same problem as tax-funded state services, because once you're paying fees for use, then you have the possibility of of other firms coming in and competing for the for those services. If it's something like roads, you can show a revenue flow for use of the roads. That eventually, if it made sense, you know, the town could sell off some of those roads to a road management company or whatever, or do some kind of, you know, long-term lease operate agreement or whatever. And so like what you said about, about all these different services being provided by different players, I think that first step is to price things according to use. Yeah. And the way a lot of these services get delivered these days is that the city council might put out like an open tender process for trash removal for the whole city. And then they end up getting some, like a five-year contract with somebody at some sort of fixed price, which even though it's sort of a competitive process, it still misses the whole point of, of having actual pay for use. So you end up with everyone's got one trash can for, for rubbish, one trash can for recycling, one for green stuff or whatever. And you know, regardless of if there's different times of year when you might need three green bins in a week as opposed to just one, and there's other times of year when you don't need any, you kind of pay this flat fee and you get this one bin for a year round. And that whole system is just completely lacking the information of actual demand. Yeah, and, and again, something like like that, like trash services, it's you know the, the different kind of levels you could have. Is one is you have the city owning its own trash trucks and having its own employees going around and picking up trash, 
right? And having that funded out of a general, say, property tax. That's what I see as the worst model and the most, let's say, status model and the one that, that least aligns usage with, with payment. And from there, you could go to what you said is, let's say that maybe you're still funding with property taxes, but the city isn't actually running that service. They're hiring a firm to come in and provide that service within the town. That starts to get you more of a market price for those services. But as you said, you still don't have the demand side of that equation. Then the next best option is rather than the town funding that through property taxes, that they charge people for the, the actual trash pickup services that they use. Even if those are, let's say, mandatory, that you know they require everybody to to pay for for trash pickup services. If people are actually paying fees for what they use, you've removed the kind of messy property tax, you know, wealth distribution scheme from the trash management service. And then beyond that, of course, if it's not mandatory, then people can choose if they want to pay for their own trash to get picked up, or they can choose to take their own trash to the dump. And then, kind of the final layer you could pull back there is. Well, maybe the town doesn't deal with that at all, that the town doesn't get involved in trash management services and homeowners just contract with their own waste removal services uh, to come and get their trash. I think that's how we need to be thinking about strategies for removing things from state power by peeling back each of these layers of state involvement in these services and infrastructure. I think it's fair to say that the Hoppian or the post-libertarian strategy is also based on a kind of decentralization, but it's more it's more of a geographical decentralization rather than this sort of scope decentralization that, that the ANCAP strategy uses. So the famous phrase is 10,000 Lichtensteins. The idea is that you have these covenant communities all over the place that may each have their own rules according to whatever the people who live there prefer. And the fact that these are kind of geographically decentralized and are their own political units, the idea is that there's nobody else kind of lording it over them at some higher level of government. I think there's a couple of problems with this. I mean, one is that, you know, if you look at if you look at all of Europe, Europe pretty much started out as 10,000 Liechtensteins, and now they've got one Liechtenstein and one EU. <laughs> and so so I don't think geographical decentralization is really any less susceptible to the the iron law of oligarchy than an ANCAP society would be because these different principalities or communities or whatever need to trade with each other. You know, and eventually someone's going to find opportunities to form what are probably really, you know, legitimate efficiencies that they can find by doing certain forms of consolidation. And they'll be able to either sell these to the people who are living there or, or to seize power in a way that the people living there won't be able to resist. I've heard some of the post-libertarian guys address this concern more in the context of, you know, well, what if you set up your absolute monarchy and then progressives take it over? And their response is usually just like, well, you set it up, you know, you just don't let them do that. So basically it's like, you got to just make sure that you keep your friends in power at all times. I see that strategy as it's sort of a high risk, high reward strategy where, where, yeah, if, if you're successful, you, you basically get everything you want and you're the king. But if you're unsuccessful, I mean, usually the people that kind of try to do these revolutions, right? If, if, they're, if they're not successful, you know, they're the ones up against the wall. And then, and then their whole ideology is demonized for the next hundred years. I see the post-libertarian strategy as, if you're familiar with the idea of finite and infinite games, this is, this is a book that I've actually tried to read this book. And it's just like, it's one of these books that you're better off just reading a, someone else's summary of the book than reading the book itself. Because <laughs> like, once you get the general idea, it's like, okay, well, the, the writer's actually a little bit kind of Marxian. And so he's all you know criticizing corporations and stuff. It's, it's all this kind of airy-fairy, mishmash philosophizing. It's not the kind of style of reading that I can get into. But What's the name of the book? It's called Finite and Infinite Games. Games. 
Yeah, I've, I've, I've read shit you've never even heard of, so <laughs> I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of this. No, can't say I have. Yeah, no, but this, this is actually something, if you read... Um, I don't like them apples. Chuck... <laughs> <laughs> this is something that if you read uh, Chuck Marone's Strong Town's book, um, I think he actually talks about this a bit in, in that book because he's talking about it from the perspective of developing the built environment for... It kind of relates to time preference and kind of short-term versus long-term thinking. But the idea is that there's, you know, a finite game is that a game you play to win once, whereas an infinite game is a game that you play over and over again. And the goal of an infinite game is to keep playing the game as opposed to, to just winning it. So a finite game is like, you know, you crush your enemies, you see them driven before you, and you hear the lamentations of their women. <laughs> and then you're the king, but the only way you hold on to that power is through maintaining a certain level of force to prevent anyone from uprising against you and seizing your power. Whereas an infant game would be more of a kind of win-win type situation where it's much less antagonistic and it's set up in a way that you know you might, you might call anti-fragile or it's kind of self-reinforcing. The society you build continues to maintain itself in a way that aligns with your goals. So I see the post-libertarian strategy as being more of a finite game approach, which is funny because you know these guys talk a lot about time preference and stuff, you know, that, that, that it's, it's the long time preference people that are the best people and all this sort of thing. But then, you know, you look at their actual strategy and it's like, well, this is, it's, it's a short time preference strategy. It's like, we're talking about seizing power now. And, you know, part of the reason for this is that it's like, well, there's real threats now that we need to confront. So it's not unreasonable, but at the same time, it needs to be done in a way that isn't going to set you up for failure later on. So this is where I'm talking about pursuing different strategies that are complementary to each other. So you could have this kind of high time preference strategy or finite game type strategy, but I think you still need to have a longer term, more infinite games type strategy, which is going to be more kind of collaborative, less antagonistic that has to come up behind it in order to ensure longer term success. Yeah. I mean, what, what you're describing, it reminds me of Yarvin's, you know, telephone pole standing on its end description of libertarianism i mean i i think you could and i think dave smith argued this when he debated him recently that these power games tend to also be you know pencils standing on their ends or whatever where where it does take some applied force to keep them in this kind of arrangement that is preferable to you know to the post libertarians or, or whoever are, are arguing for these types of systems i mean i think it, you know generally in libertarianism uh, particularly anarchism we're kind of making this wager that to the extent that we are able to remove the state from human interactions, that those interactions will improve, that they'll be more cooperative, that they'll be more, let's say, market-based and efficient and, and more rational and possibly more resilient, you know, all, all that kind of stuff that we see the state as something that, that screws all that stuff up. Whereas these guys are saying, well, no, like the state's, the state's always going to be there screwing this stuff up. So we need to be the guys who are the state so that we can, you know, since we know how to, we know what to do. We know how to run the state. You know, we know how to make all these things work right. We just need to get the right people into power, which is us. And, you know, of course, we've all heard that one before. It's funny because there was a conversation that popped up on Twitter a little while ago where it came out that a lot of these people who are promote this monarchy stuff, they don't actually want to be the king themselves. Like they just want to be the subject of the king, which, which is kind of funny in its own right. But, but it kind of raises a, a more interesting question, which is like, okay, well, well, who's your guy? Like, who is this, who's this king that you're going to raise up? 
you know, what is it? Is it Ron DeSantis? <laughs> like, yeah. And that that's I mean, broadening that out a little bit, that that's a, a kind of a big problem I see with with even Hoppe's covenant community strategy is that the problem is getting the right person or people in power. You know, I mean, that's that's always been one of the fundamental problems of kind of political theory. Right. That everybody thinks if they can just get their guy in power, then everything's going to be sunshine and roses. Yeah. If I was president. Yeah, right, right. And in the covenant communities, that problem kind of gets multiplied because what you're saying with the covenant community is, okay, well, we're going to get a whole group of people together who all agree on you know certain fundamental principles and certain rights and, and ways of organizing our community and, and all of this stuff, right? Um, and of course that can work. I mean, as I've said, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of successes, um, with the free state project here, which isn't exactly like a covenant community. I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not like they're all living in one little commune or something like that. But even the idea of just getting, you know, all the right people into one place at one time, that alone is a challenge. When you think about like, even if you had to like move to a little commune, like with your 10 closest friends, right. And their families and, and whatever. I mean, even that group of people, you'd probably have a lot. You'd probably end up fighting about a bunch of stuff, right? It's like it's like you and me and like our, our best friend, you know, from college. We had an apartment together, like when we first got out of college. And I mean, we didn't get into fights or anything, but it's like you know, it's like having roommates. Like like you just kind of you just kind of get on each other's nerves, you know. <laughs> and it's like I imagine that like that's to me is what I see as experience of these covenant communities is that. Let's say that you can get, as I said, the, the right people at the right time to move to the right place and, you know, and do the right things to get this thing set up. What happens like a few years down the road? You know, don't do people want to want to some people might want to move out. They sell their property. Somebody else moves in. Like, do you have I mean, a part of the kind of, I think, hopping strategies and you have some kind of, you know, community controls over who is moving into this neighborhood. Right. <laughs> But at the same time, what does that mean? That means that now the community has a say over who you sell are able to sell your property to. And it's so like the the more you go down this road of we're going to rely on getting the right people in this community to do the things that we want. First of all, the bigger that community gets, the harder it is to do that. And second of all, the more kind of authority that you're ceding to that community, the farther you're getting away from I think the kind of liberties and freedoms that even these post-libertarians would want to be able to live by. And property rights. Yeah, exactly. Well, especially property rights. Yeah. That's almost a complete abrogation of your property rights when, you know, when you don't have the right to sell that property, you know, to whoever you want at whatever price, because realistically, you know, if you start restricting who who you can sell your property to only to other avowed libertarians or, or avowed post-libertarians or whoever, then uh, it's gonna you're gonna have a pretty small pool of buyers for that property unless you've got a really attractive place. Yeah, I mean, I th I think that really this the whole covenant community strategy it kind of assumes away this fundamental problem of political theory, which is how do you get people with different interests to live together peacefully in some form or another? If you start that line of questioning by saying, okay, well, first it's like that that economist joke about you know it was like the economist and the engineer fall down a well and you know. The engineer says, well, what we have to do is first we have to, you know, like stack up these rocks in this way and we have to do this, this and that. And the economist says, no, 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 no. Here's what we do. First, we assume a ladder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what this is to me. It's like, OK, well, first we assume that everybody gets along in this one community and then we can talk about what the rules are going to be. It's like, no, 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 that's that's the whole problem that we need to solve in political theory. Right. 
And you've kind of just assumed that away. And, and you know, as, as these things get bigger, there's kind of a trade-off here where the smaller the community is, then the less power and authority you have over kind of your, your daily life and interactions, right? It's like if, if you only have 10 people in this, in this community, you're not going to have a grocery store there, right? You're probably going to the next town over for a grocery store. You're probably going to another town for, you know, to access a job market and, and, and do some kind of work. And so to the extent that you still have to interact with the outside world around it, you haven't really gained anything by putting yourself into this, into this covenant community. And then as that community grows and you do start to get grocery stores and, and jobs and things within your community, to the extent that it's growing, I think that it becomes a lot harder to maintain the original set of values and principles that everybody shared to begin with. One thing that, that Pete has said on this is that, you know, even though we're, we're kind of calling it covenant communities, he says, if you have to write it down in a covenant, then you've already kind of lost. You know what I mean? In other words, that if if the things you want to achieve in this community aren't so ingrained and embedded in the people's ideology um, who all choose to live there, um, then it's going to be really hard to to keep it just by writing something down. And of course, the infamous way that Hoppe suggests to enforce this is is through the mechanism of what's called physical removal, which we've discussed before. This is one point where the post-libertarians, I think, see themselves as departing from libertarianism, especially the non-aggression principle, is that they have no qualms about using force simply to enforce this sort of ideological purity in their community. Now, we've made some arguments against this in the past, especially in our episodes about public space. From a libertarian perspective, we think that this is pretty hard to justify in a lot of cases. Now, technically, if you do have a proper kind of covenant community where everyone has actually signed some sort of you know, contract to live in this community and agreed to certain terms, then realistically, this idea of physical removal would be a term in the contract. So from a, you know, from a pure libertarian Hoppian perspective, you could argue that everybody who's living in the community has actually explicitly agreed to be physically removed if they violate certain rules. So I think it can be defended on that ground. Now, of course, you get into the issue of, okay, well, what happens, you know, when those people start having kids, you get into the whole kind of Lysander Spooner argument where it's like, you know, there's a meme going around that shows like Lysander Spooner, you know, who was this, this abolitionist in the 1800s or whatever. And that the meme, the meme's got a photo of him and basically saying, I didn't sign shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, so it's the same argument where basically it's like, okay, well, sure. The people that, that first set up that community have agreed to all these terms and, and people that, that have moved in have, but once you get a couple generations down the road, you know, you're going to have people that have, that have been born there that, you know, as Lysander Spooner said, he, they haven't signed shit. Yeah. And that, again, if you are actually relying on, you know, hoppy and kind of physical removal as a means of enforcement of whatever in your little community. I mean, that right away is, is a pretty strong abrogation of, of property rights. I mean, it's like the example Hoppe gave was if you have, you know, people in your community who are, are talking about communism, then you can physically remove them from the community. So it's like, OK, like so. So so let's say let's say you have to, let's say, you know, somebody starts waving, you know, red flag walking around the town center waving like a hammer and sickle flag or something. Right. <laughs> Wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt. Right. So now the community decides that they're going to get together, move that guy out of town and then what happens to his property? What the community takes it over? So now they've so now they've actually like exercised communism, you know, over this guy's individual piece, individually owned piece of property. 
<laughs> well, he's out of the streets. Yeah, I mean, like, if your perfect society can be threatened by someone reading Robert Reich, like, that's on you. That's your problem. That's not his problem, <laughs> you know? Um, but, I mean, just to be fair, so Pete has talked about, you know, rather than actually kind of, like, forcefully removing someone, what you do is you try to get people to pool their money together and basically buy the guy out. Say, look, you know, this isn't working out here. We're going to buy you out and uh, and kick him out of town that way. So that's, you know, that's a little bit less antagonistic. Yeah, good luck with that. But, well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, try to get a few people to, you know, chip in money to fix a pothole in the street. You know, when you've got when you've got a privately owned road somewhere. Our first house was was in a, a condominium where it was basically like four units, you know, little in this little condominium on a kind of a shared property. And um, I mean, just trying to get like like a load of gravel delivered for the driveway and like getting people to pitch in for that and stuff. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a whole conversation and it's like everybody's everybody's got to pitch in and like one person doesn't want to. And then you got to kind of make them. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like. Any of these kind of decisions that you have to raise to the level of like community decision making, I mean, often stuff just doesn't get done. You know, the idea that again everybody's going to be so ingrained with your ideology that if that if somebody in the town starts, I mean, again, it's like what, what would it take? Like what would it, like even for these guys? Like what would it take for somebody to be to be doing where they would actually take action to remove that person? from their community <laughs> you know grooming like what are we talking about is it just yeah yeah okay i mean is it just is it just um like things they say is it that they're trying to get some law passed in town and then that they're you know i, I think there, there's a there's a very general kind of basic concept of these covenant communities which is look if we can get a bunch of people who generally agree on stuff that we trust you know not to not to treat each other badly and if we can get us all to live in one place and kind of leave each other alone, then let's let's start there, you know, and see how that goes. And like, yeah, that's that's fine to me. But the idea that then that's going to be going to become some kind of you know structured organization and some kind of ideological uh, way of of managing a community, unless it becomes something really kind of strict, like a like a not even like a totalitarian type of little government, but I mean like like a Puritan theocracy. Yeah, like a Puritan, like an ultra-religious community. I'm thinking of even something like the Amish or something, or maybe even like the Mormons, like to some extent, like where you have you have this community that everybody's kind of bought into some set of principles, and, and they have certain kind of community agreements that they've come to. Maybe agreements is the wrong word, but at least um, customs, <laughs> you know, that, that, that by and large people uh, are buying into. I think in this day and age where people don't just settle down in one place and live there forever, I mean, I think that's, I, I think that's going to be hard to maintain. Yeah, the, the post-libertarian guys tend to talk a lot like their sort of past ideology, you know, that they're, they're really only thinking about strategy, but you can't build a community around strategy alone, right? I mean, you, if you really want this sort of intentional community, it does have to have some sort of common principles. And and if the common principles are, you know, Machiavellian scheming or something like that, it's like it's like, okay, yeah, we've all read James Burnham or whatever. It's like, great. Like what what kind of community does that give you? And uh, I mean, like th these guys do talk a lot about what, what instead of talking about ideology, what they talk about is culture. And I think they do have a fair criticism of Lalbert's, where libertarians will tend to focus on kind of materialist economic incentives and tend to ignore the more cultural 
forces and cultural incentives. So if you look at a community like the Amish or something like that, I mean, sure, they're, they're religious, but it's really the culture that they're preserving. It's not really a particular ideology or even theology. It, it's, really, it's really that they've just kind of agreed that a certain level of technological progress is, is all you need. And uh, anything more than that is going to raise problems that they don't want to have. And the funny thing is that this actually does align with sort of a strong towns and even an urbanist um, perspective as well, where if you look at what urbanists and strong towns are talking about, they celebrate the way that towns and cities were built in kind of the pre-modern era. So before, let's say before World War II, where you did have these communities and shared cultures that really drove the way that places were developed. Now, of course, here's the throat clear. There were some, as Tim said before, there were some racist elements of zoning discrimination that happened in those days, which the progressive urbanists of those days were promoting, but the progressive urbanists of today would be appalled by. But in general, the way that they built places back then, for one thing, it, re it required a strong community in order to leverage what you've called that community power to pool resources and build common inf infrastructure. But at the same time, it, it also was kind of self-reinforcing. Like I said, you know, it's one of these infinite games where the places that were built ended up fostering the community and supporting the community, reinforcing the culture and, and building that stronger sense of community among all, the, among all the people. And of course, from an anarchist perspective, there was far less state intervention in those days. I mean, yeah, of course, you had your local town councils and stuff like that, that would probably be driving a lot of this stuff. But there certainly wasn't all this federal funding for infrastructure and this kind of crap that we see these days. One point I made in, in that talk I gave about community in episode 20 was that there's this kind of inverse relationship between um, technology and community where to the extent that we have technologies that empower individuals, there becomes less need for community engagement and community services. So for example, you know, of course, a big one is transportation that in earlier times, I mean, for one thing, people used to walk everywhere. <laughs> Once you had the automobile, it really freed people up to travel pretty far to access another job market. People weren't as constrained to trying to find a job in the area where they lived. And so they became less engaged maybe in their local community than they otherwise would have been. Same thing with communication technologies. You know, when you can, when you can just call somebody on the phone, then maybe you're not going out to, to meet people socially, you know, <laughs> or even something like water supply, you know, having water just come into your house that means that you're no longer going down to the town well or, you know, the, as I call it in that talk about my experience in Panama, you know, the pipe. Pipe by the side of the road. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the pipe by the side of the road in a Central American country where you get your drinking water from. <laughs> that becomes this community gathering event. And so to the extent that you don't have to go out and do that, you're losing some of the reinforcement of people's engagement with their community. And so, you know, I, I mean, I think that's, Generally, that's not a bad thing. I think it's good for people to have more individual freedom um, through technological power, as I've described it. But it, I think it is important to be aware of a kind of loss of community that can result from that and to try to make active efforts to, to engage with the community and to find things that give that community a sense of purpose. That's maybe where this ties into the, the idea of culture. If you are in a place with people who share a lot of your cultural ideals, then it becomes a lot more rewarding if you are able to make efforts to have community events and gathering places and things that reinforce um, your preferred ways of living. Yeah, this focus on culture that the post-libertarians have, 
I think it's useful to an extent. There was a sort of infamous speech by Jeff Dice at the Mises Institute where he, he used this phrase, blood and soil. But what he was actually saying in that speech was that, you know, a lot of people care about blood and soil, meaning that they have these tendencies to be loyal to their family and their, and their country and their nation, and that libertarians need to start paying attention to that. And of course, for the people who have made it this far in, in this inside baseball discussion of libertarianism, blood and soil was a, was a kind of catchphrase, I think, in the early days of the Nazi party, wasn't it? Or I don't really know, but I, I think it was more a term that was more broadly used, but it was one that, yes, Nazis did use. And so, or, or, or I think it's probably more one that like neo-Nazis use. Okay. And so it's considered to be a, a dog whistle or whatever. Right. But the thing is, is like, you know, the, the way that Jeff Dice was using it wasn't that at all. It was, it was saying like, look, these other people, this is what's important to them. So like, we probably need to figure out what does that mean for us? Yeah. He's saying you basically like, you, you can't just assume away that, you know, whatever terms you use for it, some form of, of call it national identity or at least community or cultural identity matters to people. And the, this kind of libertarian idea that none of that matters as long as people don't hurt each other. It's worth remembering that, as you said at the beginning, the non-aggression principle and libertarianism in general is just a political theory. And there can be a lot of other preferences that people have that aren't addressed by that alone. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, culture is a tricky thing because it's just like politics, it's like, well, just because you understand it and, and you can talk about it, it doesn't mean that you can change it. It's the sort of thing that, you know, like creating a culture isn't just like setting up a club with, with some rules or whatever. And like, this is what this is what our club does. It's such a broad and pervasive and kind of numinous concept that, you know, a lot of people go around day to day. They're not even thinking about about, oh, this is my culture. These are the things that people in my culture do. They just live their lives, and it's you know, it's like the water they swim in, sort of thing. But changing a culture is, I think, a pretty a pretty hard task. I mean, I think it's at least as hard as changing a political system, in that you've got very kind of in, ingrained tendencies. It's kind of like the analogy of of steering a big ship, where it's got a lot of inertia and momentum, and it takes a lot of force and a long time to turn it around. But I think that the way that culture does change, or that new cultures can develop is really more through a method of kind of attraction where you can have sort of a vanguard of people who are promoting a certain culture. And there are people who will either be naturally attracted to that culture or who might be kind of persuaded to join it. But again, you know, a culture isn't like a club or a political party or something like that. It's like, it's a way of life, right? I mean, it's like your whole way of life. And culture isn't normally the thing that's sort of actively developed and cultivated. It's typically more just something that develops very organically as people kind of interact with each other over time. But of course, there are people, you know, culture disruptors, you might call them, who are in media or whatever that are that push these ideas. And and, and this is a, a big thing that the um, you know the whole culture war that's going on these days. I mean, it's 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 a real thing, right? There's certainly some radical cultural ideas that are being pushed these days that even five or ten years ago weren't really considered a big deal. And this is something that where I think the post-libertarians see sort of a more conservative right-wing audience as being the most amenable to their ideas because they're opposed to some of these, you know, what you might call the woke culture wars or whatever. And so they're trying to find common cause with people who may be more apolitical, but who may find common cause with them over some of these cultural issues. So the big term that these guys throw around a lot these days is the term groomer, where they're basically accusing people of pedophilia. I saw a tweet at one point where someone someone made the comment, I can't remember who it was, but someone made this comment that the term groomer to the right 
is basically serves the same function as the term racist does to the left, where yes, it's a bad thing. Yes, there are some people out there who are doing this, but they use it as a cudgel to, to slap onto anybody who they disagree with just so that they can be shut down and, and ideally physically removed from society. But what I think things like this do is that it's a form of almost virtue signaling to people who are sympathetic to those ideas or who are opposed to the same things that you're opposing. You might call it, instead of virtue signaling, it's like transgression signaling. You know, this is some of the edgelord stuff that you see as well, where it's basically <clears throat> people using you know, offensive, racist, transgressive humor is a way to demonstrate that they're opposed to these sort of you know, modern-day political correct pieties. So I see a lot of this stuff flying around, <laughs> and it's just kind of funny from, you know, with the same guys who were telling me that we need to all adopt these traditional conservative values are the same guys out there like saying the most transgressive things that they can think of. <laughs> so I'm kind of just bored with all this stuff. I mean, edgy humor is one thing, but it's got to be clever and it gets old pretty quick if it's not. You know, it, it, I think we're at a point now where, where you see people being edgelords on Twitter. It's like they're just repeating stuff they heard from other edgelords a few years ago. So I think we're in the post-edgelord society. So I think it's getting old. People just need to get a little more serious about some of this stuff. Beyond this kind of transgression signaling mechanism, I think we need to take on a more post-edgelord strategy for attracting people to the cause. And this is another strength, I think, of the Dave Smith strategy. I talked earlier about how a more widespread libertarian message could attract some of these kind of natural elites you know, to the Hoppian strategy. But more generally, it could have more of a critical mass effect. And this is a sort of vanguard strategy, like the you know the ten percent rule kind of thing, where basically if ten percent of the people are passionate about something, then they'll be able to convince the other ninety percent to go along with it. So the thing is, if you know, if one smart guy you know is a libertarian, like that's just his thing. He you know, it, <laughs> Murray Rothbard had a speech once where he said that if you've got one libertarian, well that's just one lone nut. If you've got two libertarians, that's two lone nuts. If you've got three libertarians, that's a school of thought. <laughs> so. So that's the thing is, is you could build up to this sort of critical mass effect where if the one smart guy, you know, is a libertarian, it's like, well, that's just his thing. Like, you're not going to get on board with it. He might as well be a, a fan of some weird sports team or something. If two smart guys, you know, are a libertarian, then they're probably just bugging you all the time to listen to their podcast. <laughs> but if like three of the smartest guys, you know, are libertarian, then they probably read shit you've never even heard of. <laughs> and you might start wondering, okay, well, what do all these guys know that I don't? So then there's a certain critical mass effect that you get where this sort of mass message of libertarianism, I don't think it has to be a populist message in the sense that you don't need to get a majority of people won over to your cause. Pete did a reading of this book called, what was it, The Populist Delusion, arguing that basically, yeah, it's, it's futile to try to you know have some sort of mass democracy populist movement, which I agree with. But that doesn't mean that a mass message being promoted is necessarily trying to achieve that strategy. I think the focus needs to be on putting that message out there and just reaching a broader number of people who would be sympathetic to it, you know, who, who have just never heard it before, but, but that are willing to do some of the work and read some of the books and all that stuff to get more interested in it and to become more active in the movement. I mean, one thing about the libertarian message is that it does tend to be a contrarian message. And, and that in itself can have a certain draw for a lot of people. I mean, that's certainly something that I think drew me to libertarianism, you know, where it's like, again, it's, it's, I've, re I've read shit you've never even, even heard of, you know, when, you know, someone repeats something that they learned in eighth grade social studies class, and then you can come in with an actually <laughs> and drop some Lysander Spooner on them or some Rothbard or something like that. <laughs> There's a certain point of pride there where it's like, uh, it kind of makes you feel smarter than everybody else, right? <laughs> that's kind of 
one of the strengths of contrarianism. You know, this is something that libertarians are attracted to, but also, you know, obviously the post-libertarians are probably potentially even more attracted to it. You know, like they're like contrarian against the libertarians, right? <laughs> it's like, as well as everybody else. It just turns them <laughs> back into Republicans. <laughs> So where does all of this leave us? Are we still lolberts or have we become post-libertarians? I see a lot of the people who you'd call as like a genuine lolbert. A lot of these people are probably people who are actually just kind of new to libertarianism and are, you know, just reading they're halfway through for a new liberty or whatever, and they're just kind of getting to, into these ideas for the first time. Someone like Pete or, or like us, you know, we, we've kind of read all of that stuff, you know, probably 10 years ago during the Ron Paul days. You can only do so much kind of armchair philosophizing before you get a little restless with it and you want to move on and think more about real actions. Again, I just don't like the term post-libertarianism because I think there's very little in that philosophy that, that is actually opposed to libertarianism beyond some of the bravado that some of these guys will talk about with physical removal and whatever else. I mean, I think the same end goals are still there of protecting property rights, protecting people's freedoms, and trying to get to a more peaceful and, and prosperous society. And where I really disagree with these guys is in saying that there's only kind of one strategy that could possibly work, which is to seize power in some way, and that any other possible strategy is just a waste of time. To borrow a phrase from another famous libertarian, I think you really need to let a, a thousand flowers bloom and let people really play to their own strengths. I mean, like I said before, in my garden, zero flowers will bloom because I'm just a crappy gardener. <laughs> and likewise, I'm not going to run for my local Agenda 21 regional prefecture council. At the same time, I'm not going to go out to like a protest or something like that. You know, we, we had a lot of protests around here during the, whole, during the COVID days against mask mandates and vaccine mandates and all that stuff. And um, I think those served one good purpose, which was to kind of signal that there are other people out there that oppose this stuff. But at the same time, you know, they accomplished very little in terms of actually getting any any real policy enacted. And I've actually written a song called Romance of Revolution, which is, which I, I say it's a, it's a protest song about the futility of protesting. <laughs> so I've kind of got skin in the game now that I don't think uh, the strategy of protesting can ever really work. I tend to think of protesting as organized begging and voting as disorganized begging. <laughs> but all that being said, I'm really interested in this sort of path that Pete has gone down. I mean, he, he certainly introduced me to a lot of new ideas. Part of the reason we've done this episode is that every time I listen to one of his episodes, I find myself jotting down notes, you know, of new thoughts and new ideas that he's provoked either, you know, for or against, you know, whatever it is that he's talking about. So I appreciate that. And likewise with Yarvin's stuff, you know, I, I read a lot of the stuff he's writing these days and I find it really thought provoking, even if I don't agree with all of his arguments. I think the most important takeaway from this post-libertarian thing is this wake-up call that it's not enough to just be focused on theory that... We need to take an interest in some kind of practical action out there in the world. And I think, you know, thinking back, I mean, that, that's really part of the reason we started this podcast, focusing on the built environment, was that we saw looking at cities and roads and, and infrastructure, you know, real built stuff out in the world, that by trying to apply this libertarian theory to the concrete world around us, that we could test the theory and that we could work towards more practical ways of trying to bring it about. So I think there's a sense in which we've been kind of exploring some of those kind of ideas all along in this podcast. And I think what we found is that when you start to try to put this theory into reality, 
that you do come up against roadblocks and you need to go back and rethink some things. So, so whether we call it post-libertarianism or not, I think it's not enough to just focus on pure theory and the non-aggression principle. I think we need to reflect on the way the world actually works and try to square that with our ideal theory. Now how do you like them apples? Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. And I'm not talking about I'm friggin' um, Goodwill Hunting or something like that, but...